The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about intelligence. Later on, we'll check out whether smartphone use can affect intelligence with Nathan Barr. But first up, we're going to talk about IQ, intelligence, and creativity. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell and I'm here with cognitive psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman. Scott is the scientific director of the Imagination Institute in the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where he conducts research on imagination, creativity, and play, and teaches the popular undergraduate course, Introduction to Positive Psychology. He's also the host of the Psychology Podcast, co-founder of the Creativity Post, and author of the column Beautiful Minds for Scientific American. He's here to talk about his book, Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. Great to have you back, Scott. Oh, thanks, Desiree Shell. It's great to be back. Now, this is your second time on the show, and uh, I invited you on a while back to talk about IQ testing, but as we were talking, I very quickly realized that we needed a far longer piece to really dig into the concept of intelligence. Mm. So is that how you feel? Like most people don't really understand how terrifically broad the idea of intelligence is? I do feel that way. I feel that uh, even within my own field of psychology, there are some researchers, not going to mention names, not going to mention names, but some researchers who don't really go beyond a, a very narrow view of intelligence. Well, the subheading of your book, Ungifted, is Intelligence Redefined. So maybe explain that title. Yeah, you know, the the title Ungifted is not my uh, way of denouncing the field of gifted education. I'm a big proponent of gifted and talented education. What it is is it's mostly a, a commentary on how I felt personally growing up in special education under our current education system where we have certain expectations and we treat people certain ways depending on the labels that they have. So it really – that was like you know the personal aspect. Um, so this book, it was my attempt to weave um, my personal experiences with my, I hope, objective – uh, investigation of the science behind human potential and IQ, what, IQ creativity, uh, human achievement. Um, so it really was uh, my attempt to integrate these uh, all these various perspectives. And it is sort of the exploration, it, although it is very personal as well, it's an exploration of, of all the neurological and psychological and genetic research on intelligence. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a lot of uh, really exciting research in this field that I think uh, gets is just not known by the general public. I mean, I'm just really passionate and excited and, about just sharing this stuff, you know? Yeah, and that's why I wanted you to come on again because you were fantastic last time. <laughs> Thanks. So, How am I doing so far? You are fantastic. So. <laughs> Score. <laughs> now, because we are humans and humans like to compartmentalize and label and measure things, uh, intelligence is one of the things that we've tried to measure. So maybe can we talk about the history of IQ testing? How did that all start? Sure. It didn't start out as an intelligence test or an IQ test. It was never framed that way. Uh, Alfred Bernay, who was a Frenchman at uh, the start of the uh, 20th century, he was commissioned to create a test that would differentiate between those who were in need of remediation in school versus those who 
um, would profit, you know, just regular normal profiting from education. And he did create a test that did a pretty good job um, differentiating those who needed more help um, to learn and um, from those who didn't. It was never called an intelligence test. He was very clear that this test should never uh, be viewed as uh, a student's potential. He said, I don't really care about um, what came before or what will come after. My only goal is in this moment to give people the help that they need. It, what, when it was translated overseas and Americans got a hold of this test, well, it became a whole different beast. It became an intelligence test. Well, and, and why were they trying to test IQ specifically at that point? You know, it wasn't even an IQ test. So, you know, IQ is uh, a metric, is a, a ratio of your uh, mental age uh, versus your, uh, your chronological age. So if you're a 10-year-old and you score on this test like 40-year-olds do, your IQ is going to be very, very high. If you're 40 and you score like 10-year-olds – you know, you will probably be mentally disabled according to these tests. So that's the, that's the idea behind the IQ. That wasn't the IQ quotient. That, uh, that metric was not invented when the first, te- when Alfred Bernay created his first test. That didn't exist. That, well, again, he, um, decreed the notion of a summary score. He decreed the notion that you could summarize someone's intelligence with one score. In fact, he was all about looking at all the different fascinating ways that people can display their intelligence. Um, and he looked at the extent to which you could be hypnotized. Right. Um, he looked at um, uh, imagination, which didn't make the final cut in America, <laughs> which, um, uh, you know, so, uh, he looked at uh, memory. He looked at um, uh, cal- calendar uh, calculators, you know, prodigies. Things. He was just at Savants. He just did such a – he was all about breath of human cognition. Um, and that whole spirit upon which that test was originally designed was totally abused in, um, for, for a large part of uh, the 20th century when it came over to America. Well, so can you tell me that the IQ test that is in use now, where, what does that test exactly? So contemporary IQ tests are grounded in a model called the CHC model. I guarantee you no one in the general public has ever heard of this. So <laughs> um, the CHC model uh, views intelligence as a hierarchy of, of, of cognitive abilities. At the very, very top sits this general intelligence factor. So those who score very high at this top of this hierarchy um, are in, are generally smart people. So across situations and across contexts, they seem to learn new information that's complex very quickly. When you go one level beneath that top level, you get about nine specific abilities. You get a cognitive abilities. You get math ability. You get uh, verbal ability. You get visual spatial. Can you mentally rotate things in your head? You get memory you know, how many things can you hold in your head at one time, working memory. And and then when you go one level beneath, you get like upwards of 70 different kind of abilities that you can measure on these tests. Uh, that third level at the bottom, um, I think a lot of uh, very thoughtful, well-meaning uh, IQ administrators – um, really emphasize that bottom level to really get to know the student and to and to use it to inform educational assessment. So the tests today are used for a lot of good purposes. They are used. Uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that people are still like stuck in like IQ one score, 
But I would say modern IQ, contemporary IQ uh, administrators and school psychologists emphasize um, emphasize the multitude of human intelligence. Well, and the the IQ score as it's used now, uh, it's also used as a predictor of future success. I mean, by who? By the administrators, from what I understand. <laughs> I mean, there people in people in society at large are are you know the average person on the street. You see IQ, they still think of the one number, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you you see like people like you see on Huffington Post every other day. It's like little Mary has just been little genius Mary has just been inducted into Mensa. Right. You know, so IQ smarter than Hawking and Einstein combined or something. Well, look, Einstein never took an IQ test. That's that's just total BS. Um, and also, it is totally unfair to call a ten year old who does well in an IQ test a genius. Okay. That is totally unfair to the child, puts unnecessary pressure on the child. Um, and so in an educational context, in terms of gifted education, there are some educators that still rely on the IQ test as a predictor of, of, of giftedness. And they, they really almost exclusively rely on that. Thankfully, most gift and talented programs are breaking away from that model. They're looking at other kinds of abilities. Um, a few rogue, rebellious gift and talented programs actually look at creativity, you know, gosh forbid. But there still are, you know, some very traditional people in this country that are still relying on very outdated notions of human intelligence. Well, that being said, is there a correlation between higher IQ scores and academic achievement? Oh, very much so. Yes. I, uh, I've published a paper, uh, which I am happy to share with your readers if you do show notes or anything like that. Um, I published a paper showing that IQ tests are extremely, extremely highly correlated with academic achievement. Um, across the board. So if you look at like a global IQ score as a summary score of all of your ability for all these cognitive abilities and you compare it to your ability to do well in general across lots of different kinds of tests, standardized tests of standardized tests of achievement, you find they're extremely highly correlated. So that is true. But it creates an interesting situation in our educational culture because, you know, one way of thinking about it, you could say, you know, how often do we say this? But but it kind of biases – our educational culture is biased towards those who are high IQ. Now, intelligence researchers would love to, to love to conceptualize that as, oh, we're, we're, we're biased towards intelligent people. So what's wrong with that? You know, We're just biased against stupid people. But I don't see it like that. I don't see the situation like that because I don't equate IQ with intelligence. Um, as, as the, oh, the full richness of intelligence. So the way I see it is that we are literally stereotyping and limiting possibility of students who, uh, may have some difficulties in some of these kinds of cognitive skills, which is also going to make it difficult for them to do well in standardized tests, but does not mean that they can't totally kick ass in lots of other things. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to cognitive psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman about his book, Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. And so that really brings us to the premise of your entire book, uh, that, that being a success isn't only impacted by IQ. So what other kinds of things would have an impact then? Yeah, and I would say not only success, but uh, something else that really interests me is, uh, again, gosh forbid, that we care about uh, individual flourishing and well-being 
You know, <laughs> we talk about publicly recognized success as like that's the only thing that matters in life. But, but um, I really, you know, I could have called the subtitle, subtitle of my book. It is called, you know, the multiple paths to greatness. But I, I was thinking cheekily in in the the paperback version, but they said no, we can't change the cover. I wanted, <laughs> we can't do that. Uh, multiple paths to to um uh to like individual flourishing or or personal fulfillment. It's very um, long. Yeah, I know, I know. Multiple paths to fulfillment. That's not that. It's not longer than greatness. You That's just true. swap swap out greatness, stick in flourishing, done. I am not arguing with your publisher. <laughs> so what what are some of the personality traits and abilities that that could have an effect on success? Yes. Okay. So one of my favorite studies is uh from the 50s by the great creativity researcher E Paul Torrance. He looked at all of these elementary school kids um, and he followed them up uh, 30 years into adulthood. He wanted to see what were the best predictors of create, creative achievement um, as well as personally meaningful creative expression. And he found that the skills that uh, and the abilities that mattered most were not uh, scholastic academic skills. So IQ was not what gave creativity its special sauce. Standardized achievement scores, GPA, these things were not what – um, gave creativity its unique flavor. What he found is that the extent to which these kids had some fell, fell in love with a future image of themselves or they fell in love with a dream when they were young, that was a better predictor than IQ of lifelong creative achievement as well as a whole wide range of other characteristics that he calls the beyonder characteristics. So he calls these kids the beyonders, those who went, who 30 to 50 years later went beyond um, academic, just, you know, academic performance, they really changed their field. They really were considered the leaders in their field. And these, these lists of characteristics include things like persistence, um, high energy, um, uh, a love of work. So, uh, you know, grit, you know, elbow grease. They you just love working. You're like, I love getting my hands dirty. Um, in addition to loving what they do. Um, so that was also important. I really like this one. He, they found that one of the characteristics that was really important, uh, was, um, whether or not they felt as though they were they were okay being a minority of one, so he asked students in elementary school, you know, are you okay if you have an idea in the classroom and everyone else in that classroom just laughs at you, disagrees with you, including the teacher, and the students who said yes, I'm okay with that, it was a better predictor than IQ <laughs> of lifelong creative achievement and personal fulfillment. That so, makes so much sense. <laughs> so much. So isn't it crazy that we, we do so much testing and something as little as that can be a better predictor? Well, how about passion? Because you, you talk about passion in the book. Uh, not too bothered by passion. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, what is that exactly? How are we defining that? Well, a lot of people would think of passion probably – well, how do you think of passion? When I, when I used to ask you, what's the difference between interest and passion? What do you think the difference is? Passion is far more obsessive, in my opinion. Oh my gosh! Okay, so that's really interesting that you said that, um, because I distinguish. So I distinguish between, uh, and a lot of researchers in positive psychology, including the famous uh, psychologist Valerand, who's um, who's Canadian, um, distinguishes between obsessive passion and harmonious passion. He argues the difference between interest and passion in general is that interest is like is like I yeah I like playing basketball, whereas passion is I am a basketball player. Right. 
So passion is integrating something into the core of your identity, whereas interest is just a more ephemeral, fleeting um, a, a motivation to approach something. So that's, first of all, a, um, how he distinguishes between interest and passion. But within passion, he distinguishes between obsessive passion and harmonious passion. So obsessive passion is the kind of passion where the passion controls you. You're not in control of the passion. It, you're usually doing it for some sort of contingency, like a good grade or a kiss from your grandma on the cheek um, or a gold star, um, uh, money, notoriety. Um, you know, a lot of – you see a lot of – you know, did you see the movie Black Swan? Mm-hmm. She was uh, obsessively passionate about her activity. Um, harmoniously passionate individuals, it, research shows that it's a much more direct and, and high, healthy, mentally and physically healthy route to high achievement. So, um, and creativity and the, and, uh, flow. So harmonious passion is when you're in control of your activity. You, you feel like the activity that you're engaging in is you're doing it for the sake of the love of it for itself. No contingencies attached. And it's something that makes you feel good about yourself. By it, it's something you can integrate into your identity in a healthy way. People who are obsessively passionate have not integrated their activity, whether it's music, art, whatever it is. It's they have not or dance. They've not integrated it in a healthy way into their identity. But harmoniously passionate people, that activity is a part of them. It's what makes them feel good about themselves, and it's in accord with their authentic self. Well, now, how can that impact success? And I guess how would you research that? Well, there are um, really interesting studies showing a whole pathway of links leading all the way up to performance. And it goes all the way back. You start out with harmonious passion. Harmonious passion leads to a certain kind of learning mindset um, uh, called a mastery mindset, which is the is the most conducive to learning. You, If you enter – a new learning environment and you have a mastery mindset where you say, Oh, I just want, I'm just here to learn. I'm just here to grow. Um, as opposed to I'm here to outperform others or I'm here to avoid challenges. So I don't look stupid. Um, people with harmonious passion have the mastery mindset. And then that mastery mindset leads to higher levels of deliberate practice. Something Erickson has, has studied in great depth. Um, K Anders Erickson, deliberate practice, really effortful, uh, you know, learning from feedback, um, really increasing uh, your strengths and remediating for your weaknesses. And then higher levels of deliver practice lead to higher performance. But it's a whole chain of events that you want to start with harmonious passion to set it off. Well, you mentioned deliberate practice. Is How about that phrase, it takes 10,000 hours to master a field? Is that based in reality? That's bunk, my friend. <laughs> I knew it was bunk. <laughs> I knew it. That's bunk. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers and he he coined something called the 10,000 hour rule um, which was not what um, a term that K. Anders Ericsson who actually did the research ever used himself and even Ericsson in his own papers recently has spoken out and said that is a gross misrepresentation of my work even I admit that in my original study um, 10,000 hours was only an average it's a 10,000 hours average. Uh, it's averaged across all fields, across all people, which basically tells you nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it don't tell you shit. You know, what, what is informative is look at different fields, have different peak ages upon, and a different amounts of practice required 
Okay, so the amount of practice required to be a good dancer or a good basketball player, a good gymnast is different than to be a good mathematician. Being a mathematician is different than being a good creative writer. You can be a creative writer, a great creative writer. You can have 30 – I've done this research with uh, my colleague James Kaufman who's a total uh, legend in the creativity field. Um, and we published, we found that there was huge variability in creative writing greatness. Um, we found that at, at the very least, people had their best work 20 years after, um, uh, you know, um, uh, they, they've been trying to practice in this field and have been publishing. You know, not 10 years, 20 years. Um, so, um, it, you know, there's great variability depending on the field. And then within the field, there's great variability. There's some people who come and it just comes so naturally to them and they just burst out on the scene. And uh, like Chrissy Wellington, I think won um, uh, amazing race um, after like one year of, of practicing. She just had this amazing, um, uh, I guess you could say, talent for it. But there are those that that um, through hardships, through um, uh, lot, there are lots of reasons or impediments that it could take someone a lot longer to accomplish something, but they still do it someday. So I just don't like to get too bothered with all these rules um, and. Um, I, uh, I even Gladwell has retracted his statement. <laughs> Today on Science for the People, I'm talking to Scott Barry Kaufman, cognitive psychologist and author of Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. Now, you mentioned talent. Um, now, obviously, talent has something to do with success. Some people are just innately good at certain things, right? No, I don't. I think that the people don't have a good understanding of what innate means. Um, people think of innate and they think that it means uh, just all just pre-existing at birth. And that's – we know the way human development works. That's just not how human development works. There, all talents are developed. There's nothing in the genetic code that um, can allow for the fully functioning, uh, fully formed traits to just pop up from birth. Michael Jordan didn't didn't pop out uh, dunking from you know from the free throw line <laughs> at birth. That would be cool, but he I don't think he's capable of doing that. So it does require intense development. Um, what what innateness means in the cognitive science literature has a different meaning. It means the capacity to learn. So we may have innate uh, people may differ in their innate facility to soak up knowledge in something. That is true. And we do know that genes do play some role in facilitating the rate of acquisition of something. So you can view talent as the rate of acquisition. How quickly do you, you know, we tend to say people who are really talented are those who go up the learning curve at a much faster rate than someone else. But that doesn't mean that all those components were all existing there at birth. It was, it's always a combination of resources, of support, of engagement, passion, practice. You know, you find these prodigies who um, appear to have amazing, amazing talents that seem to come from nowhere. What you find is they're practicing 10 hours a day. They're, they love it. They love what they're doing. This is why in my book, I define talent as a passion and proclivity for learning the rules of a domain. That's how I define talent in my book. You, you mentioned genetics and, and the fact that there, of course, there isn't, you know, a specific gene linked with specific traits necessarily, uh, not in terms of, of passion and talent and such. Uh, but can you talk about the multiplier effect and how that works? 
Absolutely. So we may have certain genes that um, give us slight advantages uh, in youth for for certain things. So imagine like you have genes that make you slightly taller than everyone else at age uh, six. By the way, I this was me. I was um, tall for my age. I just stopped growing after age 10. But <laughs> basically, I was like really tall, um, young. And they, they made they picked me. I was the center of the basketball team. You know, I got all these opportunities. I had dreams of NBA stardom, <laughs> all this stuff, you know, all because I had a slight height advantage. Um, well, look, I eventually stopped growing. Um, I, um, Kobe Bryant, uh, uh, came to our school and, <laughs> and then it was game over. <laughs> um, that part of the book was great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, this is game over. There's no way Scott Barry Kaufman is going to, you know, outperform Kobe Bryant, but you know, he can't write blog posts like I can, to be fair. That's very okay. Well, let's go. Let's talk about talent a little bit more. Now, there's there's a lot that we can learn about talent from the research around prodigies, right? Yeah, I do think so. I think that when we look at extreme manifestations of talent, we can learn a lot about how talent operates in all of us because talent is obviously in a, a, a bell shaped sort of distribution. So, uh, although it actually depends on what talent domain we're talking about. So, talent in creativity actually involves the combination of lots of traits. So, it, it tends to not be normally distributed. It tends to be, um, a lot, a lot of, very few people at the top and most people, you know, average, you know. So, it's interesting. It depends on what you look at. But when you look at prodigies, you find that, uh, they, they don't tend to stand out particularly in creativity or, or leadership or the kinds of traits that are kind of talent domains that require lots of different um, traits, they tend to uh, stand out in one circumscribed ability. So a visual art prodigy will have an amazing capacity to draw lifelike figures at an early age, or um, a music prodigy um, can just uh, um, just play things from memory, for instance. Prodigies appear to have an amazing memory for their, uh, their domain, which seems to really aid in their learning of that domain. So what does that tell us about us fairly normal folks? Yeah, well, I think that um, you do see that, you know, Ellen Winner uh, said that prodigies are, are best characterized as having a rage to master. So I think that in terms of everyday folks, I think that we undervalue the important role of inspiration of um, of, of getting a passion or harmonious passion for an activity that we've integrated into our identity. When something is integrated into our identity like it is for prodigies quite naturally, when, when that happens to any of us, what you find is that at a subconscious level, we are learning about this thing. We're learning, you know, we're just constantly learning about it. It's constantly like in always in the back burner because it's part of our identity. So anything in the environment that is relevant to that activity or the self, because it's now a part of our self, um, we're going to learn about it. And it's going to, that's going to actually increase our chances. Or it's going to increase our learning about this, even when we're not explicitly deliberately doing so. Okay, something else I really want to talk about because we have talked about it on the show repeatedly. Uh, you say that self-regulation contributes to intelligence. So uh, this is about the marshmallow test again. Oh, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, that's like a seminal study, you know, where the, the kids, uh, the, the three year old, three to five year olds who, uh, were, were in the room and, um, and had the patience to not eat a marshmallow right away so they can get two marshmallows a little bit later. Those kids, you know, you follow them up 10, 15 years later, you know, uh, they, their SAT scores were higher than those who ate the marshmallow right away. You know, I think I would have eaten the marshmallow right away. <laughs> 
um, I'm pretty sure even today you stick a marshmallow in my face. I'm going to eat that right away. So what you're and, saying and is and I didn't <laughs> – regulation is not necessarily the be no, and end all. No, it's not. I, and, and guess what? Their science is right. I didn't do well in my SATs. You know, like, yeah, yeah, you got me. You know, I have very bad self-control. I don't do all my SATs, but I have a lot of self-discipline for things I love. I have a lot of, um, uh, I have a lot of, uh, uh, imagination, probably an overactive imagination that, um, gets me in trouble when I have to be forced to take a test in a room and ignore my imagination. You know, this is the same that you see kids with ADHD, um, which I wouldn't be shocked if I had ADHD, first of all, but, um, never been formally diagnosed. But you look at kids with ADHD and, you know, they, um, have trouble in environments like a school kind of environment or testing kind of environment environment where you have to force them to sit down and pay attention. Well, what you find in the brain is that they have an overactive uh, brain network um, uh, that I call the imagination brain network, which um, is a recent discovery in cognitive neuroscience, which we know is associated with um, uh, envisioning your future self, with your uh, remembering your personal memories, with making meaning from your life, from daydreaming, mind wandering, all these things. So what you're doing is you're taking people with overactive imaginations and you're forcing them to to strip that that entirely from their being. Well, guess what? It's not fun. <laughs> well, and there's a there's a very positive neurological value to daydreaming as well. There is a positive value to daydreaming. I should also note before cognitive scientists jump on my back, it, there is also a value to self-regulation. <laughs> I'm not saying that there is right. no value to self-regulation. You know, it is important, uh, but self, here's the thing about self-regulation. This is what I want. This is the point I want people to really take away that Clancy Blair, Adele Diamond, developmental psychologists, um, have written beautiful papers to make this clear. Self-regulation is not only about self-control, okay? It's about regulating your emotions to obtain the goals you want. Now, you know, that could that means being flexible, okay? It doesn't mean always waiting to eat the marshmallow. That's not what it means. It means, you know, if you're starving right now, you know, and it's not going to influence your goals at all, you know, eat the damn marshmallow. Who cares? You know, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to be happy. You know, like, who cares? Like, the thing is, I just don't get so hot and bothered by the, by the marshmallow. You know, it's like, it's like, it, you know, if it, it now, of course, if you're trying to lose weight, there, there's a goal there now. Okay. It's probably good to exert some self-control because you want a longer, you want to achieve a longer term goal. But self-regulation to me is about, um, managing your emotions, managing your thoughts and your negative thoughts, the things that are getting in the way of your goals, your ruminations, your, your uh, fears of failure. Okay, self-regulation very much also includes regulating your your you know uh, the negative self-talk um, because that stuff really does generally get in the way. But um, it also means embracing your passion. Okay, self-regulation could also mean flexibly tapping into your passions. Right, you're regulating your emotions so that you get in touch with your passions. To me, that's also self-regulation. It's so I want to repeat once more: self-regulation to me does not always mean self-control. So many people love you right now. Oh, great. Honestly. Great. I accept free marshmallows sent to the Positive Psychology Center. Science for the People will be right back with more of Scott Barry Kaufman and his book, Ungifted, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. 
To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. So there's something that we that we haven't brought up yet that I found really interesting. Uh, there are definitely similarities between the way that we talk about giftedness and the way that we talk about learning disabilities, right? There are similarities in the sense, I mean, I, th- I think that our culture tends to view them as separate. You know, we tend to think uh, people with learning disabilities are um, over here on the left-hand side and they're just disabled. You know, from learning, they, um, we think they're, you know, they really need a lot of help in, in every area that we, we really need their support to even just be remediated. And then on the other corner, you know, are the, are the gifted kids who, who don't need any help or support at all. They're just, um, they'll be fine on their own because they're just so darn smart. Well, none of that is true. Both of those notions are, are incorrect, um, characterizations of either kids with, Learning disabilities or kids with giftedness. So here's the here's the truth. You ready for the truth? <laughs> Do it. Okay. You can have a specific learning difficulty in something and still have an extraordinary strength in something else. These things can coexist. <laughs> Absolutely. You find kids with autism, you find kids with dyslexia, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, who in a certain limited environment they get they absolutely may have difficulties or struggle in certain areas. But you give them a chance in lots of other ways, and they are just absolutely brilliant. Um, I recently saw a video um, at the fir- world's first ever conference. It's actually just this uh, weekend in New York City. The New York City's first ever conference on twice exceptional children. That's the phrase used to describe what I'm talking about. Those who simultaneously have a specific learning disability, but also some amazing strength in some specific area. They're called twice exceptional children. And I don't think many people, you know, even educators, I give talks and I say, I, 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 Ask how many people in this room have heard of twice exceptional children, and I hardly get any hands raised, and my my head wants to explode. So anyway, um, so John Joey Travolta, who's John Travolta's brother, um, runs a camp called Inclusion Films, where he stars autistic children in this camp, and um, and you watch, they are just so capable and creative if you give them the chance. You know, it's to me, it's a lot of it is about giving people a chance and not um, leading with all these preconceptions about what people can achieve. Well, and that's what I mean by when we speak <laughs> about learning disabilities and being gifted uh, almost in the same way. We talk about them as if they're static, unchanging states. I recently had my IQ tested many, many years later, you know, all these heartaches and um, and the pain of of, uh, of expectations based on my IQ results when I was 11 and I had an auditory learning disability. Um, I was curious, where am I today? And my good friend, um, who I trust, I flew out to New Mexico. Uh, his name's Rex Young. And his team um, did a very uh, lengthy evaluation. Uh, they scanned my brain. They um, gave me an IQ test. Um, I felt very comfortable with them. And they uh, found that my global total IQ score um, is uninterpretable. <laughs> what does that mean? In the IQ test manual, when you have too much 
of a discrepancy between your verbal and your nonverbal intelligence, then it is unfair to interpret a total IQ score as having any meaning whatsoever. So it turns out that in my early childhood, I had some school psychologists that were um, perhaps incompetent, we shall say, to be nice, <laughs> um, <laughs> who are not aware of that fact, maybe didn't read the test manual. Um, it turned out that my um, the, that my I'm actually, um, in their words, verbally gifted. Woohoo! Um, and 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 visually, spatially, mentally impaired. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> So how often does that happen, I wonder? Well, with twice exceptional children or the, or kids who, who um, uh, have a, a learning disability and also um, can be gifted in some area, you find that discrepancies um, between or scatter between abilities is very common. In fact, even just looking at the gifted and talented population, just those kids, you find that it's much, much more the rule than the exception, that they have huge peaks and trials um, all across their cognitive ability profile. Okay, so this, I think, is, is one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to interview you about this topic is because these these are not just academic labels. These affect real people. So once you wind up with a label of gifted or learning disabled, what then? Well, I think that it can create some uh, good resource. It can have value in the sense that it can create uh, a need that it can give students resources that they need to ser- to thrive in the education system. There are clearly so many kids falling between the cracks when we have this education system that tries to get everyone up to the standard level. Well, when you try to get everyone up to a standard level, you have you know the kids who are who are slower in getting to that level are going to be uh, you know are going to have trouble, and then those who are ready, you know, for three, four, five, six grades ahead, you know, we're, we're not giving many resources to them. So these labels can, to be fair, these labels can give kids the resources they need. Where the problem comes into play is when these labels are treated as enduring things that you that you never escape you, you know, like once you get the resources and once you reach the, the need, they should go away. Um, they shouldn't be um, things that, um, uh, that we use to judge someone's potential in life. We should only use Use it to assess individual need at a given moment in time. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, I would view potential as um, and the and the labels as just um, an indication of what I call readiness for engagement. How ready is someone to engage in a particular curriculum? Um, or set of resources at this given a moment in time. If they're ready, give it to them. If they're not, well, keep teaching them. Keep trying to inspire them till they are. To me, that's that's all we need to do. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking to cognitive psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman about his book, Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. Okay, so science has obviously moved past the idea that that IQ is the sole measurement of intelligence, and your book is literally chock full of fascinating research uh, in many, many areas that contribute to this idea of, of success or intelligence or greatness or what have you. But we still use IQ most frequently. And maybe that's not actual, you know, administrators or academics who do that, but the public. Why do, why do we keep using IQ? Well, how is the public using IQ? Their, their, um, their, their talk about IQ, you know, when they hear about someone's IQ, they, they, ref- they, they tend to ha- hold this model in their mind that, uh, that IQ is genius, is the equivalent of genius or the equivalent of, uh, of brilliance. So people hold it in their mind. But I mean, are, are everyday people using IQ tests? 
I'm not sure. Um, I don't I do. think so. I, I, I still quote those. I still had my son do an online IQ test. And yes, I know how ridiculous that is. Where? <laughs> You should you should be whipped with a wet noodle for that. <laughs> but that's the thing. I think we use, and this is just my impression, yeah, is yeah. that why we use IQ because it's easy, because it's easier to measure. It's than, measurable than a yeah. lot of those other. Um, so yeah. So you're right. That is definitely one of the reasons, um, because it's easier to measure. Um, but I mean, there are um, other things we can measure if we really are obsessed to measure things. You know, um, we can, uh, for instance, right now at the Imagination Institute where I work, you know, we currently have this goal of creating a new imagination test. So uh, we, we're funded. We're giving out three million dollars for researchers to to come up with new creative ways of measuring imagination. And there are remnants of these kinds of tests that currently exist um, that uh, that even e. Paul Torrance did a lot of work on. But you know, looking going beyond things is like a static measure. Like I'm not a big fan of of these sort of judgment day thinking, where you you know, sit there and we're going to measure your potential in this judgment day, like right now. You know, I'm a much bigger fan of measurement through um, looking at individual growth over time. Looking at um, projects, project-based learning, um, looking at uh, portfolios and allowing students to choose themselves what aspects of themselves they want to highlight as uh, they're most proud of. You know, we really don't have that, give that much of a chance. Um, I wrote an article on reimagining college admissions and it was very much, um, this vision I have is very much a portfolio-based one where we really give kids to a chance to show us their brilliance on their own terms. And how do they do that? If you start early enough, you, what you do is ev- there is no such thing as tests. Everything is revisable. Um, you constantly just have an ongoing record or portfolio of everything. And that child can select and highlight the things that they're most proud of that they've done, um, their most, the most brilliant things over the course of their high school experience. And so what's the goal? Well, that's a good question. Right now, most people's goal in high school is to get into college. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, we can equip kids with the idea that there is more to life than getting into college, that there is um, a great importance and value to making uh, uh, some sort of humanitarian contribution to the society and the world at large, which is something that anyone can do, which is something that there is no IQ cutoff where you're not where you where you're not allowed to dream of bettering this world you know it's like it's not like you know you you go to the sickle psychologist you know i don't want to live in the world where we go to the school psychologist say look i have this dream of you know um curing world hunger and they say sorry you're not gifted your iq is not above 130 you can't do that um, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You know, um, there's this uh, group I work with uh, called the Future Project, where they've created a position in the school called the Dream Director, where any student in the school can go to the Dream Director and say, "This is my dream," and the Dream Director will immediately s- say, "Great, you know, great. Let's see how we can get there." And they pair them up with a mentor, and they get going. I'm much more of a go, go, go um, uh, atmosphere. Is what we need. we need that culture, this culture of inspiration. Um, much more than our current model of the culture of evaluation. So it's not that you want to redefine intelligence. It sounds like you want to change our culture. Right. My, my main, you know, thing right now is not to read. I'm not so hot and bothered about, you know, how people define intelligence, you know, but I think de- redefining potential 
um, redefining what what it takes, what people are capable of achieving, given um, resources, opportunities, um, and and just darn you know confidence in their abilities. Just 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 you know patting someone on the back and saying you know you belong. Whether it's like a woman you know who's in a math class with all guys and just saying to that woman you know you are extraordinarily talented in math. You know you belong. There's research showing that things as simple as that go such a long way. What people have said is that it's, it appears in the STEM fields for women, it's what's called a chilly environment. This is a phrase that's used in the academic literature. We, they still, there's still a chilly environment. If you can remove some of these barriers and make this world and education a much more open, um, encouraging place for, ki- for, for, for boys and girls all across the ability spectrum, I think you'll see a lot more creativity come out of everyone. Scott, you are just lovely. <laughs> Thanks so much <laughs> Thanks. for being here. <laughs> My pleasure. It's so much fun to talk to you. And that was Scott Barry Kaufman, author of Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. And we've linked to it on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Nathaniel Barr, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Waterloo. He conducts a mixture of applied and theoretical research on topics spanning creativity, reasoning, memory, perception, and attention. He's the co-lead author of the recent study, The Brain in Your Pocket, evidence that smartphones are used to supplant thinking. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me on. Uh, maybe let's just start with you taking us through the study. Sure. Well, we were inspired by a couple of distinct lines of research as well as some uh, trends that we see in society. So um, we were first interested in this area simply because of the extent to which we see people using smartphones as an information source in their daily life. And in terms of how to set that up in a psychological experiment or study, we thought, hmm, let's connect this with a few things. So on one hand, we turned to work showing that people treat the Internet like an extended mind. So um, philosophers have talked for a while the idea that we can um, offload our thinking or cognitive processing to things in the environment. And uh, Betsy Sparrow, a researcher, showed that people tend, when they're um, confronted with difficult problems, to think of the Internet uh, rather than try and solve the problems themselves. And then finally, we connected all of that with this idea that people are very um, cheap with their cognition. That is, they're lazy thinkers. And we can characterize people from being very lazy to less lazy. So what we simply did was look at people's cognitive styles, um, ranging from intuitive to analytic or more colloquially uh, lazy to not so lazy, and we simply related that to how often they were looking for information via their smartphone. So uh, tell us about the methodology here. Uh, how many participants? Yeah, so in our paper, we have three different studies, and in all, there's more than 600 participants. Um, it's worth noting our participants both were um, a, a random sort of sample of adults um, throughout the United States, as well as university students here at Waterloo. Um, and so the methodology we used was to employ um, well-studied and well-understood reasoning questions. And simply what, what the thing we're most interested in is that we presented people with problems in which there's an intuitive response that's incorrect 
correct. So the idea is is that if they just go with their gut response and don't really think things through, they're going to get it wrong. Whereas if they reflect and think analytically about the problem, they're more likely to arrive at the correct answer. And so we looked at people's performance on such questions, which we see as a way of characterizing how cognitively lazy they are, and then we related that to the, their self-reported smartphone search engine use. And as we've discussed, what we find is that the people who tend to be more lazy in their thinking are more likely to rely on their smartphones for information in their everyday lives. So what kinds of questions did you ask them to put them into those uh, intuitive and analytical groups? Yeah, so we used uh, quite a variety. Um, a lot of this is inspired by the work of uh, Daniel Kahneman and some of these Amos Tversky who have done this type of work throughout the years. So, for example, one thing we look at is base rate problems. So we pit stereotype information versus statistical information, and those people who more often rely on the stereotypes are more likely to be a bit lazier in their thinking when you relate it to other things. Um, we also used a pretty wide-ranging heuristics and biases battery that's quite detailed, different types of items. But again, we're looking at problems in which we can identify people who are more prone to rely on these mental shortcuts generally, because the way we conceived of the smartphone was that it could be considered as a sort of tool to be used as a mental shortcut. Rather than having to memorize things yourself and retrieve them via cognitive effort, you can just simply type that into your phone. Well, and how did you look at their smartphone use? You said it was self-reported? Yeah, we simply just asked people how often they were using their smartphone for a variety of things. Our particular emphasis was on the search engine use, but we also asked them, for example, how often they were using it generally, how often they were using it for social media, how often they were using it for entertainment purposes. What's interesting is that our findings relating cognitive style to the smartphone use were very specific to the search engine use. That is, you know, it didn't seem to matter if people were, you know, checking Facebook or watching YouTube videos on their phone. That wasn't related to cognition. However, the extent to which they were searching for information via Google or some other search engine did seem to be related to that. So, like, how do you, you know, convert Celsius to Fahrenheit and such? Yeah, we really think we're just sort of helping to open a door of a whole area of study here in that we just sort of did this self-report study, but there's all kinds of interesting things that could be done where we actually track exactly what people are searching and sort of relate the specifics of what they're looking for to their cognitive style. So does your study claim that people that are heavy users of, of smartphones tend to be less intelligent? Well, we also included some sort of verbal intelligence measures, some numeracy measures, and we find the same type of relation there. So it does seem that the people who are less knowledgeable, perhaps you could say, or less intelligent, also seem to be um, behaving the same way as the lazier thinkers. Those things tend to be correlated as well. So yeah, in essence. That's interesting because, again, I, the theme of this show is intelligence. So how are you defining intelligence then? Yeah, so we admit, use admittedly kind of coarse measures. We use uh, like more or less a vocabulary test that's relatively widely used. We, uh, being this is sort of interesting, it's an online study we did. So they're relatively quick and easy measures we use. So specifically, it's a words on verbal intelligence test, the one, and then we have a numeracy test with a few items. So these are things that just sort of um, tap into how much these people tend to know. Um, and if you think about our results, on one hand, you know, someone could have made the opposite prediction as us in that you might have expected people who have a lot of knowledge as well as those who are very reflective and analytic in their thinking might be using these smartphones to seek out new information. Right. Again, we didn't actually measure what people were searching, but we can make, I think, an indirect inference 
difference, although we can't be sure, that given that it's the lazier, less knowledgeable thinkers that are more often relying on these smartphones to find information, it might be the case that they're actually looking up things that could be relatively easy to learn or things that they've encountered before. So rather than using it as this device to extend our knowledge, we're using it to sort of maintain some requisite level of functioning. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Nathaniel Barr, co-lead author of the recent study, The Brain in Your Pocket, Evidence that Smartphones Are Used to Supplant Thinking. Let's be extra clear. Uh, We're talking about correlation, not causation, right? Like heavy smartphone use also hasn't been proven to make you less intelligent, right? Yes, definitely. That's a very important point. One that we're encountering as more people talk to us about this, that I think a lot of people are quick to, you know, infer causation through the correlation. That said, um, we do think it's going to be a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. One reason, you know, our our study design simply wouldn't afford us the opportunity to speak to that. Um, However, I think it is an important thing for us to study in that we simply don't know what the long-term consequences of sort of reliance on this external device in our pocket for searching for information will be. Um, You know, so we we would advocate that we need to try and get some funding toward longitudinal studies, for example, where we track people's device usage and see how that relates to their cognition over the long term. Our hunch, though, is is that humans are pretty resilient and very adaptive and that, you know, we don't necessarily want to go with any kind of doomsday thing because these devices are a huge, huge advantage in many ways. You know, when you think about the types of lazier or cognitive misers that we're talking about that are using it more often, previously they might simply have just went with their gut impression when solving a problem and given an incorrect answer, whereas now, even though they may be acting lazily by allowing their smartphone to do their thinking for them, they're actually probably in some ways more likely to generate correct answers. Maybe let's talk about the the other potential correlations here. Could it be that for some reason analytical thinkers are just less likely to use their smartphones? Yeah, like I said, one thing is we collected a few different types of measures and we thought it was interesting that, for example, if it was just a general disinclination, we might have expected the same types of correlations for social media and entertainment usage, but we didn't see that. So I think it's seems to be relatively specific to seeking out this sort of information. And what about, I, I don't think this was within your study, but I'm just wondering, could there be a difference between using the, the smartphone for the same reason as you would use the computer, but you use the computer less, you know, it's less mobile? Yeah, so we actually did ask people about their computer usage, and we find no difference here with smartphone owners. So smartphone owners, we find no relation between their cognition and the extent to which they use search engines on their computer. However, interestingly, for non-smartphone owners, we do find this relation between cognitive style and search engine use on a computer. So in some ways, it seems that people who have the smartphones have sort of advanced in their ability and no longer really rely on the home computer, whereas people who don't have the smartphone, we do find that relation. So that's an interesting sort of wrinkle in our data that we haven't had a chance to talk about much. So if, if your study is correct, some people are doing less work to find the answers that they need. Is that bad? Yeah, and like... We think it's important to think about both the positive and negative consequences of this. One example I could use that takes it to the extreme is on one hand, I don't think anyone's really upset that we, for example, could just look up the phone number to our favorite restaurant. You know, we don't really care about memorizing and retaining certain types of information. But on the other extreme, imagine if your surgeon had no knowledge stored in his mind about the procedures that he was operating on you and was just simply looking it up as he went. I think most people would be disconcerted by that kind of offloading of 
knowledge. Now, in between those two extreme examples, there's all kinds of gray areas where I would say that we simply don't know what the real sort of cost or benefit is going to be in this external reliance on devices. Um, a really interesting thing to me is creativity. You know, to what extent to reason creatively and effectively with knowledge, do we need to have it encoded in our mind long term? versus being able to just source it externally as we need it. Um, there's all kinds of interesting questions that I think both science needs to explore and society needs to decide in terms of what this optimal trade-off between internal cognitive processing and external uh, reliance on devices is. I love this research. I'm just wondering, you know, would it make the analytical thinker being able to fact check and look information up on the go, are they sort of able to use their, their cognitive processes for other more interesting things rather than converting Fahrenheit to Celsius? Yes, certainly. As, we, as I said earlier, people range in the extent to which they're what we would call cognitive miser. That is, they want to, you know, prize efficiency over accuracy. And so it, it always is necessarily sort of a trade-off between ease and efficiency and effort. And so I think that as long as these tools are used appropriately, they're a huge advantage to humankind. Um, you know, if you look at the course of history, um, you know, people have always relied on external sources for knowledge. For example, you know, you might have a knowledgeable friend in a particular area and you could seek them out and ask their opinion on something. Likewise, people, you know, encyclopedias and reference books were hugely popular throughout the ages. Um, people could go home or go to the library and procure an answer that they might not have available in their own brain. You know, the Internet, as Betsy Sparrow showed with her work, really marked a new era in the way that um, information is accessible. And we would argue that the smartphone is an even bigger step in that direction because now the power of the Internet is available more or less anywhere we go. So we really do have this, you know, in essence, it's some knowledge of humankind available in our pockets at all times. So, you know, although people, I think, have some reticence about our reliance on these types of devices, I also think it's a massive advance for humanity, too. Now, you are far more optimistic than the media artic articles that I'm reading uh, make <laughs> you sound, because it sounds yeah. like doom. doom. Yeah, no, we, we definitely are aware of that. Yeah, it's really, I think, you know, more generally for science, it's an interesting kind of lesson for me and sort of how people like to lay their own interpretations over these things. But again, you know, I don't want to say that there won't be any negative consequences right. either, because these are such a recent addition to our society that we just simply haven't had a chance to track it effectively over time. But, you know, as I said, there's there's necessarily always positives and negatives with anything, but we certainly most definitely do not want to have everyone throw away their phones either. Okay, well, if we assume that, that people are becoming less, and I'm trying not to use something that sounds like a moral judgment, but let's say less effortful in their thinking mm -hmm. uh, with heavy smartphone use, and that is a problem, then right. are, are you prescribing something perchance? <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like I said, you know, we just can't know yet, but um, we do know that analytic and reflective thinking is extremely important. So even if, you know, say like worst case scenario that there is this trend where people become increasingly lazy in their thinking due to this availability, what we would say is that we really need to prize that reflective thinking, if not for the retrieval and encoding of this information, but the assessment of it as well. So the internet is saturated with information, but how do we know what's valid information, for example? How do we know what to do with these facts that we Google? We need to retain these aspects of our cognition that allow us to think effectively, clearly, and analytically about problems, regardless of whether we decide as a society that offloading 
some of our knowledge to our phones is okay. Nathaniel, thanks very much for being here. Yeah, thank you. And we've linked to Nathaniel Barr and the study, The Brain in Your Pocket, Evidence that Smartphones Are Used to Supplant Thinking, on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You can also listen to all of our back episodes or click the links to Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.